morning, Alma campus and St. John's campus and those of you online. I wanted to take a moment first for a time of prayer in uh, memory of the seven families who lost loved ones at Covenant Christian School in Nashville last week. So if you will, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your ways are beyond our understanding. So we don't come to you asking to know why, but we come to you asking for comfort through your Holy Spirit that you would touch each of the families that have been affected by the loss of a loved one, that you would uh, bring truth into their lives and help them, Lord, to continue to live for you, to not lose sight of you, even in the midst of this terrible tragedy. So, Lord, we, we lift these families to you now. We ask your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. There may be a handful of you in here who know what a 1955 Buick Roadster looks like. The rest of you can go look it up online. All right, it's one of the biggest vehicles I have ever seen, and my uncle and aunt owned one. And every summer that I can remember up until the age of 16, we would drive that vehicle from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way down to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, where we would stay for a month. My mother drove the car, my aunt rode shotgun because none of us believed that she knew how to drive. I have a brother and a sister older than me. This car is so big that my brother laid down on the floor in the back seat for his rest because it was an eight-hour drive. My sister laid on the seat. So what did that leave for me? This is how big the car was. I laid in the back window. <laughs> Seriously, I was all up into that back window. Now, let me ask you a question. When you've traveled with small children, what is the one thing they say after about an hour and a half? Are we there yet? <laughs> yes, and I'm sure that's what I said every time we went on that trip. And I got that real loving statement from my mother, almost. Well, we have been on a journey for the last nine weeks. You know, are we there yet? <laughs> no, not yet. But let's review for a moment where we have been. We looked at specific events in this three-year public ministry of Christ. We picked out ones that we felt would show how Christ walked against the grain, how every time he spoke or did something, it was never within the realm of expectations that the people had. He was different. He was unique. We started off with his introduction by John the Baptist, who said, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. And then we followed him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan and put Satan in his place. Then we jumped forward a little bit in his ministry, and we find him in the process of calling his disciples, and he's with Peter in a boat, and Peter acknowledges that he is holy and Peter is sinful. From there, we hear this interesting conversation, uh, and it's about what I am about to say to you. You've heard it said, 
But I say, because every time Jesus had something to say, he took it from the context of where their memories were in Old Testament thinking, and he brought it forward and he changed it and made it new. And then we move ahead to where the question is, what did you say? And he said, the temple, tear it down, three days, I'll raise it again. They had no idea what that meant. Then we move into the nighttime, and we have a conversation with this Jew who's a member of the Sanhedrin, a very wise man named Nicodemus. And the conversation leads to Nicodemus actually being one who helps bury the body of Christ. We believe, therefore, he had become a follower of Christ. Then Jesus teaches the disciples, if you want to be great, you have to become a servant because he is the suffering servant. And then two weeks ago, we heard about the new covenant in his blood when he introduced it at the Lord's Supper. And last week, the new command, the command of love. So we have this overview that we've been flying above and dipping into every once in a while. And no, we're not there yet. Because today, we're going to focus on just a few hours. Some of those last hours that Christ had on the earth. Our scripture reading this morning brought us from that last supper into the Garden of Gethsemane. And perhaps you know the story that in that garden, Jesus told the disciples to pray and he went a little further in and he prayed and he was in turmoil because he knew the route that he was taking. He knew where it would end. He knew he was going to the cross. And so he was disturbed in his spirit to the point that his flesh was actually seeping blood. But he came back and he said to the disciples, could you not stay awake and pray? And at that moment, everything changes. The Roman soldiers are coming up the hill. But let's do what they do in movies and in television. Three hours earlier, I picture Caiaphas and Annas and Herod and all these Jewish leaders and rulers trying to figure out, how can we stop this guy? Well, we need to arrest him. How do we do that? We need the Roman soldiers to come and do it. So they bring the Roman soldiers in. And you can imagine the Roman soldiers are saying, well, where are we going? You're going up to Gethsemane. Well, how many people are we coming against? Oh, there'll be 11, maybe 12, maybe 15. We don't know for sure. Well, which one is he? Well, check Facebook. <laughs> you know, they didn't know what he looked like. And what is it that Isaiah said? He said that he was comely. In other words, he was just an average looking person. There was nothing about him that would draw us to him. So he was not an attractive person. He was just normal, Middle Eastern, darker skin, dark hair. They didn't know which one he would be, but there was someone in that audience that had a plan. His name was Judas. And Judas told these priests, listen, for 30 pieces of silver, I'll go up to him and the one I kiss is the one you want to arrest. They said, great. And they gave him the money. 
Now, we jump back in to the garden. Here come those Roman soldiers. Peter is there. John is there. Some of the other disciples are there. And you know through Peter's actions that this was the mindset that each of them had. We can't let them take him because, my goodness, you know, if they arrest him, the arrest? I put a question mark after that because as far as I'm concerned, Jesus wasn't arrested. He turned himself in. But when they come up to him, what does Jesus say? In John 18, 4, he says, who is it you want? Now, the disciples are going crazy. Peter takes out his sword. He cuts off the ear of a servant. Jesus heals him. Jesus says, stop, don't do that. Don't do that. Well, we can't let you be captured because if you're captured, you won't be able to go in and capture Jerusalem for us and cause Rome to fall. And that's what we believe the Messiah is supposed to do. So we can't let them do that, but Jesus goes against the grain again. He says, no, stop that. Stop that. Don't do that. And I think at the same time, Judas comes up and he gives Jesus a kiss. And we know at that point in time that the Roman soldiers then take Jesus. Now, another way of interpreting that question that Jesus asked, who are you looking for? Who is it that you want? Do you know that people followed Christ in that day more for what they could get from him than to follow him as a person? And that hasn't changed. There are people today who are willing to say, I accept Jesus on my terms. I want healing. I want provision. I want deliverance. Now, I believe in all of those things that I want them too. But what do I want more than that? I want Jesus. I want the person because it's a relationship that Jesus Christ was offering then and now. But people followed him because of the miracles and because they could be fed by him. They could follow him around and he'd provide lunch everywhere they went. So they were looking for the stuff that Jesus provided. And sometimes I think we as believers get lost in the stuff that Jesus provides rather than being found in him. Well, it happened in uh, this particular time. Jesus was out, and John records it in John 6:56, And he wants to make a clear statement that it's not about the stuff I'm doing. It's about who I am. So unless you drink of my blood, you know, eat of my flesh, you won't remain in me. You, you can't do it. It's all about me. And then in interesting text, John 6, 6, 6. What does it say? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because they wanted the stuff. Now, what's your pursuit? Who are you looking for? Are you looking for a relationship with Jesus Christ or are you looking to get out of that whatever you can get? That's the, the challenge that you and I have been given. Because, let me tell you, even in Christ, suffering happens. The pain comes. 
The losses occur. The provisions are not there. There are times in your life, you know them better than I, when we don't have everything that we thought we'd have by accepting Christ. But what we do have is the most important, and that is a relationship with him. So Jesus is challenging them, and he turns himself in. He says, I I know what I'm doing. You know why? Because he can't be the victor without becoming the victim. Success in Jesus' life is through death. Now listen carefully. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. You and I are to die to self as we live in Christ. Paul also said, I live, I move, I have my being in him. In other words, he's what it's all about. He's the reason I live. He's the reason I serve. He's the reason I love my wife and my children and my grandchildren. Not because of what I get from that relationship, but because of the relationship itself. When the Roman soldiers came to arrest him, they came because of what he had done not because of who he was. They didn't understand who he was. So he moves now into this understanding that he wants you to understand. Your destiny depends upon what you do with Jesus. It's not on what you can achieve, the good grades you may get, the money you may earn, The things you may own, the places you may go, those things have a level of matter in our lives, but ultimately your destiny, where you're going to end up at the end of this life, depends on what you do with Jesus. So when he said, who is it that you want? I want Jesus. And I don't want anything else. I don't want the interruptions that come from the world to try to pull me away from him. But they arrest him, and they take him for a trial. Now, let's clarify that term. It's really not a trial, okay, because there are two trials, so-called. The first one is with all these priests. It's with Annas and then Caiaphas, and then they send him to Herod because Jesus was a Galilean, and Herod was over the area of Galilee. They sent him there. But they did it at night, and legally, back then, no trial could be held at night. Secondly, the defendant had two days to prepare his defense, and thirdly, he always had the right of representation. None of those things held true with this. It was an illegal gathering, not even a trial. And the priest bounced him back and forth, and they accused him of three things. They said, first of all, you're an insurrectionist. You want to cause Rome to fall. You want to upset the Jewish world. Secondly, you're a blasphemer because you've said that you and the Father are one, and you've made other statements that are blasphemous to us. And then thirdly, this is a really funny one, you don't pay your taxes. (laughs) I mean, really? He did. Remember the time he sent Peter down and Peter picks up a fish and he brings a coin out and 
Jesus said, whose face is on it? He said, Caesar's. He said, give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is his. We did pay his taxes. And he wasn't a blasphemer because he's God. And he wasn't an insurrectionist because he told them, everything I have done, I've done in public. I have said it openly. I haven't created riots. But those were the charges that were brought against him. Now, the judgment needed to be made quickly because they knew if they could achieve crucifying him, they needed a morning decision on that Friday morning to get him up there before 6 o'clock, which was the Sabbath beginning for the Jews on Friday night. And that's why they were pushing everything along. And they're questioning him, and they're asking him all sorts of things. And what is his response? Isaiah said, he remained silent before his accusers. The trial. Second question comes. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you really the king of the Jews? Now, 30 years, he had been silent. In the last three, sometime between age 27 and 30 or, or 30 and 33, no one knows for sure. But in those last three, he had even hidden from his own disciples a full revelation of himself. He did it in, in couched language. He made statements that they would not yet understand. They didn't even know when he said, the Son of Man will be beaten and arrested and taken and put on a cross and the third day he will rise. They didn't know what that meant. But in this case, in response to this question, for the first time, Jesus responds like this. And it's a classic response. He said, I am. Well, now, doesn't that take you back to the I am of the Old Testament? Where God revealed himself as the I am. Jesus says, I am. This is who I am. But I'm not just the king of the Jews. <laughs> I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the creator of the universe. He didn't say those things, but that's real. That's who he is. So when Pilate is asking him about this, Jesus, again, is using a couch language, but he's responding, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate says to those who brought him, well, what's he accused of? Well, he's an insurrectionist. He's a blasphemer. He's a tax evader. So none of those are worthy of death. I don't know what to do with him. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. What do you do with him? What are we going to do with Jesus? Pilate is looking at him. Pilate is thinking, well, you're a liar? Or you're a lunatic? Or you are Messiah. And now the turmoil begins in Pilate's heart. He's wrestling with the issue of the Jews and of Rome and of Jesus. He's trying to decide, what am I about to give up if I don't release Christ? If I send him to a crucifixion? What's that going to cost me? 
If I crown him, what's it going to cost me? If I crucify him, what's it going to cost me? Let me tell you that if you don't crown him, it costs you your destiny. Because to crown him means to place him first, to put him where he is already on the throne, to acknowledge that throne upon which Christ sits, to acknowledge his lordship over your life. Now, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to sin. But oh, the forgiveness that he grants. And it's a wrestling match similar to that of Pilate. Some of you may wonder, well, what will my friends say if I accept Christ? Or what will my family say if I come to Christ? Will they think I'm strange and weird and a religious uh, person that doesn't understand? No. They won't get it yet, but you do. So Pilate's wrestling with this, and he's thinking, if I turn over Jesus then I can wash my hands of it because I'm not making the ultimate decision. The people will make the decision. If I release someone else, then here's my difficulty. If it's not Jesus the Messiah, they, the people, are going to tell Rome that I didn't do what I was supposed to do and I'm going to lose my position as the one who oversees all of Judea. So I have a problem here. I have this choice to make, and it's a difficult choice for him as he stands there before Christ trying to figure out what to do. It's Pilate's dilemma. It's the choice, and he says this, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? There was a rule at that time in history where the Roman governor, Pilate, could actually make a choice to release someone to the crowd. And that man's name was Barabbas. Now let's read what both Matthew and Mark say about him. Matthew 27 says, At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barsabbas, Barabbas. Mark 15, 7, A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So here we've got this guy that's well known. He's an insurrectionist. He wants to overthrow Rome also, but he's doing it in the wrong way by trying to be an insurrectionist to cause riots. And he's also in with murderers that could mean he is a murderer. We don't know for sure, but that's not what is so ironic about this man. First of all, his name is Jesus. Now, Jesus is a common name in that period of history. You can imagine why. If you're a woman and you're having a baby and it's a boy and you're Jewish, you want it to be the Messiah because you heard the baby would be born and he would be the Christ and so you're going to name him Jesus, which means he saves. So there were a lot of Jesuses running around. But even more important is his last name. Now, they didn't go by last names. They went by relationship. For example, with Simon Peter, we read that Simon Peter was Simon Barjona. Bar meant son of. 
Jonah was John. So it was Simon, son of John, or as my Greek professor in seminary said, therefore his name, since Simon and Peter actually mean rock, his name was Rocky Johnson. <laughs> Jesus, Bar, son of, I get this, son of who? Abba, son of the father, a father. Jesus, son of a father, is the insurrectionist who's in jail for murder and insurrection. And then there's Jesus, the son of the father, who is the Messiah. They're opposed one to another. They're the choice that you and I have to make. The world's way of upsetting the world and getting it where you want it to be, or Jesus' way of doing it. His is radical. His is against the grain. It's not easy to understand because he doesn't give us more than we can handle. And so I don't understand. I don't understand what happened at Covenant Church or Covenant uh, Christian School last week. I don't, I don't need to understand. What I need to do is pray, pray, pray for that family. We have choices to make every single day. The choice is Barabbas, the son of a father, and his way of life, or Jesus, the Son of God, and his way of life. There's no middle ground. There's no accepting Christ on this side and living on this side. It doesn't work because your destiny is determined by who you deal with. If you choose Jesus, that's your destiny. If you choose Barabbas, that's your destiny. And you're at a point where you need to make that kind of a decision. It's an intentional contrast. Choose anything other than Christ. And you've committed spiritual suicide. That's what the Jews did. Matthew 27, 25. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. What a terrible, terrible statement. The blood of Jesus cleanses you. The blood of Jesus cleanses me. It sets me free. The choice has been made. And when I made that choice, I did it without full understanding. I did it by faith that had been placed in me. That I knew this, if I didn't do it, I would go the way of Barabbas. But if I made the choice, my destiny would be set. And I would live with him forever. Crown him or crucify him? Did the Romans crucify him? Yes, but so did you and I. Because all of our sins were placed upon him. He paid for every sin in this building, in Alma, in St. John, and all of you online. He paid the price. So that we are set free by choosing him. Everything he did, he did for you and for me. But we're not there yet, are we? There's still more to be done in our lives for him. So this is a challenge to all of us to live our lives to glorify God, to make the choice that I choose Jesus the Messiah. And I don't know if you've ever chosen him before in your life. Maybe you're sitting here today one of our campuses, and you've not made that commitment. Today 
is a great day to do it. And then celebrate on Sunday of next week with Easter. So here's the question. Will you crown him this morning? If there are there in our midst here, those of you who have never accepted Christ, then I'm going to pray with you that you will crown him today. And that after doing that, you'll go out to our information center, to the Connect desk out there, and you'll get the New Believer Kit. And then you'll contact us so that we can follow through with you. Because it's a journey that you need to take. You don't need to leave here this morning following Barabbas. But it's still your choice. So let me pray with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly went to the cross, that nothing could stop you from your destiny to pay for the price of our sins. You came to seek and to save the lost. And Lord, that's us. And so we choose you today. We surrender to you. We lift our hands and surrender, and we say, yes, Lord, count me in. And now we need the power of your Holy Spirit to enter our lives that we can follow through on that commitment. So if there's anyone here today that wants to make that commitment, just pray this with me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and cleanse me, Lord Jesus. Make me what you want me to do to be. I crown you today. And I ask this to be the first day of a new destiny for me. Lord, we pray these things and the rest of us are asking for that strength to follow that destiny to be who you called us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we there yet? <laughs> no. Come back Friday for Good Friday and then come back Sunday for Easter Sunday. Take these cards with you as you go to invite your friends to come back. God bless you and have a great week as we get ready for Easter.